Our scripture reading for this morning is Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen. Amen. The table to come. We are in part four of a five-part series called A Generous Table, and I'll recap it in just a second. But uh, for those of you that are curious where we're going to go after next week, so we have one more week in this series, and then we're going to study the book of Colossians. And I can't wait. Um, I've enjoyed this series so much, and I can't wait for that new series as well, because Colossians, of all the books, maybe in the whole Bible, is just all about Jesus. And so we're going to title our series, The Center of All Things. And he really is. And we're going to talk about what that means for us, not just theologically, but practically. So looking forward to Colossians very much. Well, if you're kind of jumping in to this series with us, um, We've talked about why the table, the image of the table, the metaphor of the table is such a powerful image throughout scripture because it's at the table where God provides for us. I mean, you see on this table, there's actual food here. It's literal food. And throughout God's word, he constantly provides for his people. He provided for the original human beings with literal food. He provides all throughout the Old Testament, his people, all the New Testament, his church, around tables, literal tables where people are eating and drinking together. In fact, you remember the key question of this whole series goes back to week one of the series from Psalm 78. The people were wandering the wilderness and they said, can God spread a table for us in the wilderness? And as we talked about, that's the core question that we all ask all throughout our lives. Can God spread a table for me in my wilderness? And, and my struggle with infertility or my struggle with loneliness or my broken dreams or my hard marriage or my job that I can't stand or, or my grandkid that's sick or, or, or on and on and on, can God spread a table in the wilderness? It's the question we're all asking using different words. So throughout this study, we've realized, actually, we, we believe he can and will because we see that he has. From Genesis all the way through the entire Bible, God has shown up for his people and he spreads tables in wildernesses. Not always the exact table we want. There are times you look around your table and you realize, I wish there was some steak on there and all I see is bread and grapes. But it's always what we need. It's always enough. And it's all been pointing forward to a table yet to come where there literally will be everything, everything that we desire and need and want. And that's the table that you just heard read about from Revelation 19. So it's our primary text today, but we're not gonna spend all of our time there. I'm gonna go backward and talk about a couple other meals that Jesus had with his disciples in order to lead into it. But let me just set, set up this message by saying this. Um, my favorite kinds of movies are the epic storylines, especially if they have a theme of redemption. 
So I'm not talking about romantic comedies. I'm not talking about, you know, Disney animated classics. There's a time and place for all of those. But I'm talking about Braveheart. You know, I'm talking about, for me, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, all three of them. I'm talking about these massive epic movies where there's conflict and there's war and there's things that need to be, you know, evil that has to be overcome. And you get to the end of the story and it is all made right again. And you're going to have a celebration scene at the end of these epic movies. It's always there in different forms. Sometimes it's literally around a table. But I want you to know that the picture of the table in Revelation 19, the the marriage supper of the Lamb, is the celebration scene at the end of the epic story of, of creation that is unfolding before our eyes. It is what we have to look forward to. It is the not yet that is in contrast with the now where our tables are not filled literally and, and figuratively with all the things that they need in order for us to have true fullness of life. That table to come is the table that every meal we eat now in a sense is pointing to because you eat the food on your table and you're thinking, this is good provision from God. It brings me joy. It reminds me of Jesus who is the true provision, the bread and the life, but I'm still gonna be hungry three days from now, three hours from now. If you can wait till three days, that's pretty good, by the way, from one meal. Three hours from now, five hours from now, I'm gonna be hungry again. And guess what? I'm gonna have to eat all over again. At the table to come, your deepest desires for eternity will be met. And isn't it interesting that the image that God uses to represent our future eternity is a table. And the reason I love that is because a table is so tangible. Guys, you don't have a feast as this is described without actual food. There's gonna be real food at the table to come. There's gonna be, we're gonna eat in eternity. And so just like I told you, this is real food on here. You know, I'll prove it. I'm gonna eat a grape right now. Mmm, good. Heaven will be real. You know what I mean by this? It'll be tangible. If your view of heaven is you're just like floating around like you know, some disembodied spirit playing a harp, like who wants to do that? That's not the biblical picture of heaven. Or you know, I used to, my vision of heaven used to be, I guess it's gonna be like one big church service. And I didn't like church that much growing up. So that wasn't such a good view of heaven. But then I read my Bible and I read Revelation 19 is actually a meal. And then you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and you're like, oh my goodness, it's a new earth. It's recreated. There's talking about trees and rivers and mountains. You go to the prophecies in Isaiah and it's talking about animals. Everything's gonna be made new. It's gonna be right. The best picture, uh, if you wanna know what heaven will be most like, the best picture in the Bible is the Garden of Eden. What's true about the Garden of Eden? It was like a table that God provided. It was, he just threw everything in there and he was like, man, have some of this and have some of that. And every tree was for good food and there was just that one. There was just that one tree. He said, don't eat that one. Guess what? There's gonna be no more temptation there in heaven. It's just gonna be one big table, one big feast for us. So I believe Revelation 19 actually is describing a literal meal. John had a vision of a literal meal. You and I, all of us who put your faith in Jesus are going to be there. It's like he saw a picture of us along with you know, several million of our closest friends. And it's not just a literal meal, although it is that. It is also a fantastic picture of what all of eternity will be like. The provision of God spread before us. The presence of God around the table with us. Those are the things your heart most longs for. Provision and presence. To be known and for your needs to be met. That's the image of the new earth that we're gonna have. It's very tangible. You're gonna eat and you're gonna drink. And all God's people said...
Amen. Yeah, we got some Baptists in the room. Good. Now, I want to get into this particular text that Carol already read by going backwards. And we're going to look at two meals that Jesus had with his disciples while he was still on earth with them, but after he was raised from the dead. Each meal that we're going to look at is going to teach us something that we have to look forward to in the table to come. Because if a good picture of heaven is sitting around a banquet table, all of us together with Jesus Christ, then just maybe we can learn something what that will be like by looking at the meals Jesus ate in his new body, in his resurrected body with his disciples. And interestingly enough, as you read the resurrection accounts, they are filled with food. I think that's cool. So turn first to Luke 24. We're going to look at one in Luke, one in John, and then we're going to go back to Revelation 19. So let's start in Luke 24. Uh, your fingers are going to do a bit of a workout this morning. While you're turning there, let me give you some context of Luke 24. This is literally resurrection day. Jesus has already risen from the grave. But the problem is the disciples, although they've heard, they've heard from the women that, you know, the angel said that the, 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 he's alive and, you know, that they, they, they went to the, ran to the tomb, uh, John and Peter did, and, and they don't find the body, but they haven't seen Jesus yet. Guys, put yourself in their shoes. It's so easy for us to be like, well, he was alive. They should be happy. They should be celebrating. Do you realize how hard that would have been for them to believe? Until they saw him face to face, they weren't going to truly be able to buy into this. In fact, one of them, Thomas, even said, it won't even be enough for me to see him face to face. I've actually got to touch the, the scars in his hands so I know he's real, so I know he's tangible. So at this point, Luke 24, the disciples hadn't seen him yet. They just heard, well, the angel said that he's resurrected, but how do I know that that was a true testimony or if it was just, you know, a bad meal that the women had the night before, you know, the indigestion. So what, what they, they're waiting. They're just trying to see what's going to happen. And we actually know that the 12 are hidden up away in an upper room, likely the same room that they had the meal with Jesus a couple days earlier because they're so fearful and they don't know what's going to happen. Two of the followers of Jesus, not two of the 12, but some of the other followers of Jesus walking on a road that day from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're talking about all this stuff. And we know their emotional state because it tells us in, in, Luke, 20, in uh, Luke 24, it says that they're sad. We also know they're confused by the questions they ask. They're having this conversation and, and they're, they're raw emotion, sad and confused. This man comes up to him and starts talking and it's Jesus, but they just don't know it yet. I think Jesus kind of supernaturally just put a little veil over their eyes where they don't recognize him. Or, you know, or maybe he did like a, um, a Mission Impossible mask, you know what I'm talking about, where he didn't look like Jesus, but actually was Jesus. But for however he did it, in some way, he did not want them to know who he was initially. And he comes up casually and he just says, well, what are you guys so worked up about? And they say, are you kidding me? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard all this stuff about Jesus? And, and, and the way that I would translate that is, is they basically looked at Jesus. And they said, from what rock did you crawl out from under this morning? Someone please get that. <laughs> there it is. And Jesus says, well, actually, I did crawl out from under a rock. That's, that's not how that goes. <laughs> now they get it. Hey, I got to work on my delivery of that one because the, the first service didn't get it either. I had to explain it. <laughs> So what Jesus does do is he says, listen, let me show you from the whole scripture how all the things you're talking about, the suffering, the, the, the pain, the death, the burial, was all prophesied. 
And he gets to this beautiful uh, verse right here. I think it's verse 27 of Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, let's pick up in verse 28 on the screens and we'll read 28 through 32. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Do you see what's going on here? Jesus chose the moment at the table to finally allow them to see him. And what's incredible about this moment is he's, he's blessing the bread. He breaks the bread. He offers them the bread. Okay, the last time he sat down at a table with people, he did the same thing. He broke bread and gave it to him. This is my body, right? Now, he breaks the bread. He offers it to them, i.e., provision. Like here's food that you need. And in the moment they have the provision, they realize they're in the presence of Jesus himself. The provision of God, the presence of God right around a table. I cannot imagine what that would have been like for these men. Suddenly they see. I, I was trying to think of an analogy and, and, and this is the best one I could come up with. When you were little, was there ever that Christmas where you just desperately wanted one thing? You know, like the, the, the red, there's the, the red wagon thing and there's the, the gun, the boy with wants the gun or is it the red wagon? I get those all confused. Anyway, these Christmas specials have the same theme, right? Well, for me, I remember these days. I was like, man, if I could just have the evil Knievel wind up motorcycle guy, that's what I really wanted. So you, you see it under the, the tree and you hope it's that, but you don't know. Why? Because it's shielded, it's guarded, it's wrapped up. So it's like this hope and expectation, but it's guarded until you actually open it up. And you're shaking it. It's like, oh, I think so, I think so, but I'm not sure. But until Christmas morning, when you finally get to unwrap that thing and you look at it and you realize, yes, 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 that's it. You know, evil Knievel, my dreams are come to come true. That's what these men experienced times a thousand. They'd been walking with Jesus. Their hearts were burning within them. They didn't recognize him. And in this very moment, he reveals himself. And it's like the worst moment in our lives this weekend of watching our friend die is now the best moment in our lives because it means that everything the scripture pointed to is fulfilled in him. He really is who he said he was. He really will do what he said he will do. He is not gone. He is still here. We just had bread with him. So Jesus does this incredible jujitsu move where he takes the worst and makes it the best, you know? And these guys are like, oh my goodness, this is absolutely incredible. Now, I want you to apply this to what it will be like for us to see Jesus, for us to be around a table with him, see? So this is the first thing that we have to look forward to. We will see. Our eyes will be opened just like theirs were, and we will finally see. What will we see? First and foremost, we will see him high and lifted up. He's going to be at the, the head of the table. This image that John had, a real picture of a real meal, a real table with real food, there's going to be a real Jesus. So think about this, guys. We walk our lives, and I don't care how, how strong your faith is, it's still faith. It's still faith, not yet sight. 
So you're walking around, you're thinking, boy, I, I believe, like I, I believe what's in that wrapped package is actually the answer to what I've really been longing for most in life. I believe Jesus is real. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe that all the stuff in the Bible is gonna be true. Lord, help my unbelief. You know, that's the walk of faith. That's my walk of faith. Man, I don't know about you. But you're walking and it's a faith journey. There will be a day, scripture says, when our faith will be made sight. We will unwrap the gift and we'll say, yes, yes, yes we will finally see. And I don't want you to underestimate how important that is. Because not only will you see Jesus, but you'll see the provision of God for you all around the table. And there will be some things about your life now that don't make sense now that will make sense then. So just like these men were walking with Jesus before he revealed himself, the weekend made no sense to them until he taught them and then opened their eyes and they saw Prior to Jesus opening the scriptures to them and then opening their eyes to him, all they saw was the backside of the tapestry. You've heard this analogy before. It's like, what's on the backside of a tapestry? Only a wreck, only a mess, only a tangled weave of colors that makes no sense. And the moment Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures and then opened their eyes literally to his presence, it's like he flipped over the tapestry he made sense of their pain. And that's what you and I have to look forward to as well. I can't promise you that every question you have now will be answered then, but I do believe that Jesus will make sense of your pain. I do believe that around the table to come, your whole life will finally feel like that tapestry is being turned around and you can see what God has been up to all along. And, and how the, the ugly, painful colors were all part of this gorgeous, beautiful design. And you'll, you'll, you'll think, you'll be like, oh my goodness, I never dreamed it could be that good. We will finally see at the table to come. And then guess what? When we see our hearts will burn within us just like theirs did. By the way, that's a metaphor, not, not of pain. That's a metaphor of joy. It's like so much emotional energy is being released in these men as the whole history of Israel in the scripture finally makes sense, as all the suffering of their Messiah finally makes sense, as their own little part of the puzzle following Jesus finally begins to make sense. So much untapped joy is just released in them. It starts bursting out and they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained us the scriptures? This will be the table to come for us. We will finally see and our hearts will be set aflame with joy. There'll be this cathartic release of all this pent up frustration of how things don't work right. There's gonna be this overflowing sense of, oh my, it's even better than I dreamed of. We will finally see and our hearts will burn within us. That's happening, y'all. That's going to happen. It's not some smoke a pipe kind of vision. This is a thing that's gonna happen and it's gonna be real. It's gonna be tangible. We're gonna have real food and we're gonna see. Now, I want you to see one more thing we have to look forward to. This time, John 21. One more meal post-resurrection Jesus has with his disciples. While you're flipping there, let me give you some context. From that moment with the, the men at Emmaus, Jesus later that day appeared to the rest of the disciples in the flesh. 
And he appeared to them a second time a little later. And now in John 21, he's gonna appear to them a third time. They're back up in Galilee. He told them to go there and wait for him. And so Peter does what Peter knows to do. Peter was a fisherman before he met Jesus. So Peter goes back to fishing and we don't know all of his motivations. Some people have suspected that he's so down and out because of his his sin and his denial of Jesus and the night that Jesus was arrested that, that, that Peter's given up on fishing for men. He's now gonna fish to, for fish again. We don't know all his motivation, but that could be true. But for whatever reason, Peter goes out, his friends with him, they're fishing. And then on the shore, they fish all throughout the night. They don't catch anything. And then on the shore in the morning, they see a figure. It, it's, it's too dark out for them to recognize him yet, but they hear the voice called out. Did you catch anything? They shout back, well, no. It's, you know, you just hear the frustration in their voice. It was a terrible night. There's nothing in the lake right now. And then uh, the voice says, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat. That's where they probably would have thought to themselves, hold on a minute. We've been in this scenario before. This is deja vu all over again. This is how Jesus called us. Could it be Jesus on the shore? And they had to have been thinking when they threw the net on the right side of the boat, they're like, if this thing comes out with a bunch of fish in it, it's him. Sure enough, you know, miraculous catch of fish part two. They pull this thing in and, and as they're pulling it in, John says, it's, it's him, it's Jesus. And then Peter, impetuous Peter, gets so excited, he just jumps in the water and he doesn't even wait for the boat to get to the water. He's like wading through the water. It's about 100 yards, and he's going through, probably part swimming, part walking on the, the rocks, trying to get to Jesus. And we're going to pick it up right here in verse 9 of John 21. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. You see how Jesus, what he's doing here? This is the meal that Jesus provided for him. It's so brilliant. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Pause there for a minute. The details in scripture are so spectacular. Um, this is not a made-up story. It's 153 fish. Someone, like, why, why would you add that in later? Just make it sound real or something? I mean, it's 153 fish. They, they, they took note of this. Verse tw- uh, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. What, what an invitation He's just like, come and eat. I mean, it's so casual and so tangible. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. By the way, I think that's in there in light of the other passage we just looked at. There was some spiritual blinding earlier. That's not the case this time. They could all clearly see him. They didn't even have to ask him who he was. They knew it was him. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Once again, we have post-resurrection Jesus offering food the provision of the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a little detail in this meal that makes it come alive with all kinds of emotion for Peter. By the way, Jesus is not the central character in this particular passage. Peter is. Peter's the one that the author John keeps going back to. And then Peter ran in the water. Then Peter went back and got the fish. And Peter this and Peter that. The whole passage centers on Peter. And there's a detail that John put in here that's very intentional. And it's the description of the fire that Jesus used. This goes all the way back to verse 9. They saw a charcoal fire. Now, we all know what that's like. Um, Why does Peter go out of his way to just say it's a charcoal fire? This is actually fascinating. Did you know there's only one other time in the whole Bible that that the Greek word that's translated charcoal fire is used? 
one other time in the whole Bible. There's only one other charcoal fire that's descriptively mentioned. Also in the Gospel of John, a few chapters back, John 18, verse 18. Let me read it to you. And as I read it, see if you can remember what was going on in the story in John 18, 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So here's Peter around this charcoal fire in John 18. Guess when this is? The night that Jesus was arrested. Guess where Jesus was? Close by in chains. Guess what Peter was doing? Trying to stay warm, living in fear, living in shame. Guess what happens right after this? People come up to Peter saying, I thought, I recognize you. You're, you're one of his followers. Peter says, no, I'm not. Another person comes up. Yeah, I, yeah you are. You, I know you're. I know you're, you're from them. You, even your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. You're with Jesus. No, I don't know that man. Peter's warming himself. Third time, person comes up and says, yeah, I, you're lying to us. You're clearly one. And Peter realizes at that point in time, he's going to have to go, you know, take it up to 11 to convince him that he's actually uh, doesn't know Jesus. So he curses. And, and I think from studying that text, he's cursing Jesus you know, he's saying, it's like, I'll show you how much I don't know that man. I'm willing to cuss him out. I don't know that blink, blink, blank, blank guy. Right then the rooster crows. Peter runs away in shame. Fast forward a few days, maybe a week or two after that, John chapter 21. Peter's running through the water to get to Jesus. He's only seen him two other times. He can still hardly believe Jesus is there, but there's still a part of Peter that feels that shame. He comes up on the shore. Before he even gets into the presence of the Lord, he smells the charcoal fire. And it takes him back. I had a seminary professor that said it this way. For Peter, shame had a scent. The scent of burning charcoal Why would Jesus put Peter back around a charcoal fire? Why would Jesus intentionally take Peter back to the place of his deepest shame? To redeem. To redeem the shame. To restore Peter. To invite Peter back into the work that Jesus had called him to do. And that's exactly what happens in the text. After breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he asks him the same question three times in a row. He, sa he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And why does he do that? It gives Peter the opportunity each time to say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. What Jesus offered Peter at breakfast this morning was much more than food. He removed his shame. He restored him into the work he called him to do. Each time after Peter said, Lord, I love you, Jesus says, feed my sheep. He was gonna be a pastor, y'all. He was gonna be the leader of the church. Saying, okay, since you love me, be about what I've called you to. You've been held back by the shame. You don't have to go back to fishing, Peter. I've called you to something different. So if you love me and I believe you do, then feed my sheep. You see, he was restoring him. He's removing his shame so he could be about the work that he called him to do. Guys, this is what will be true of us at the table to come. Our shame will be permanently removed 
It will be permanently removed so we can be about the work that God created us to do. We're gonna do work in heaven. It's gonna be beautiful. It's gonna be glorious. We're not gonna be held back anymore by our shame. So this is the second thing we have to look forward to. Number one, not only will we have eyes to see, we will finally see, but number two, our shame will be permanently removed. And in order to fully understand how powerful this is, think back to Genesis chapter two. Because the very last verse of Genesis chapter, th- chapter two, right, right before sin comes into the world and all hell literally breaks loose on earth, the very last verse of Genesis chapter two, verse 25 says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the last time human beings walked the earth without the scent of, of shame in our nostrils. Ever since then, we're walking in it. We're living in it. I carry it. You carry it. For some of you, it is holding you back in profound ways. For others of you, you live like you don't have a sense of shame, but when you slow down and get introspective enough to know, you realize it's right there. Psychologists will tell us that shame does more damage to our emotional and relational health than maybe anything else. Shame motivates our masks that we wear so that we won't be known. Shame is behind the deception and lies that we tell ourselves and others to cover up what we know is not right. Shame lurks behind our destructive coping mechanisms. Now for the believer in Jesus, there is so much progress to be made for our shame. For our, there's so much hope to be had. And, and a lot of what we're doing in, in our discipleship intensives and in our small groups is helping people understand the gospel in a way that makes a tangible difference in their real life, including places of shame. But until we sit around the table to come, we won't experientially fully know, fully see that our shame is gone. There's not a single human being other than Jesus Christ that's ever lived that knows perfectly well what it feels like to be comfortable in your own skin. Not fully, not completely, not all the way. At the table to come, your shame will be permanently removed. It won't even be a distant memory. We're gonna have new bodies We will be completely at rest in our own skin. We will be fully comfortable in our new identity as part of the bride of Christ. That's what this marriage supper of the lamb is all about. So we've looked at two post-resurrection meals of Jesus and we've seen two glimpses of our future at the table to come. And here's what we've learned. Number one, we will finally see. Number two, we will have no more shame. I'm gonna put those on the screen because we're gonna interact with them just for a few minutes before we wrap it up here. Now, These two things have a lot in common. They're connected in a pretty profound way. And it goes back to Genesis chapter two and three because when sin entered the world, shame came right with it. And there's something here that I want you to see. And it's, it's fascinating. So I wanna read Genesis chapter three, verse seven, which is the very next verse that comes after Adam and Eve sinned. And, And by the way, we've talked about this before, but the sin in the garden, you know what it was about? It was about God who'd set this gorgeous, beautiful table for his people and said, eat of everything on here. There's just this one thing that's not for you. It's not life-giving for you. Eat everything else on here. Be as full as you want. Life is before you as I intended it, but just this one thing is not for you. And so what do Adam and Eve do? They start looking at that one thing. And after a while, they're basically saying, you know, this table is great, but it's not enough. 
It doesn't have everything, does it? There's that one thing. I love the fact that food was the way sin entered the world. Food's the way that God's gonna remove our shame and open our eyes around this table to come. But in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, immediately after they ate the fruit, immediately after they sinned, listen to what it says. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Have you ever thought about how strange that is? Like, what, did they not look down before? You know, what do you mean they knew they were naked? No, they, they, they knew all about each other's bodies. Well, that's not what this is about. What this is about is there was something in that moment that, that, that caused them to feel shame. It was an opening of their eyes, but not in a beautiful way. Their eyes were opened, but they were ashamed of what they saw for the first time. Now I want you to think about the table to come. Our eyes will be opened. We won't see our nakedness. We'll see our clothing. We will finally see that our shame has been covered. That, that part in you that still churns, that still wrestles, that still lives in shame, that wants to say, I believe the gospel, I believe in Jesus, but I still wrestle with shame. That's gonna be no more. You will finally see, and you will see that you have no more shame. You will look down and you will see covering, not nakedness. And the picture of that in Revelation 19, it says we will be clothed with fine linen, the fine linen of the righteous deeds. Whose righteous deeds? Well, in a sense, it's our righteous deeds, but it's actually Jesus righteous deeds through us, his body, the church. We will finally see, and what we see will make us realize we are indeed clothed, and there's no more need for shame, and we will be able to fully be about the work that God created us for, and that will begin the life you were made for. With those two incredible truths in mind, we will finally see, we will have no more shame. I want you to think about what it will be like to eat a meal with Jesus. And I want us to go back to Revelation 19. And here's what I want to do. I'm gonna reread those verses for us in just a moment. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And I want us to celebrate it with joy. Because I wanted to take you to these other places so that when I read it again, you're not just gonna think, oh, well, what's this marriage thing going? You're gonna realize, oh my goodness, I will see Jesus. I will see provision. I will see my own clothing. I will have no more shame. I will be free to work. I will be free to worship. I will be free to relate to one another, the deepest parts of my heart and my soul. And after I read this text, we're gonna celebrate the table together. The table, as Lloyd reminded us last week, every time we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together, it is a picture of the table to come. And it's not meant to be done with somberness. It's meant to be done with joy. The cross is the altar. The table is the celebration. The cross is a great place to, to reflect and feel the weight of your sin Absolutely, but the table is the place that you feel the joy of your salvation, the, the part that you realize the cross is what enables the table, but when I'm at the table, it's resurrection. When I'm at the cross, it's Good Friday. So we're gonna be at the table this morning and we're gonna reflect on our future together and we're gonna do it with joy. So let me give you some instructions of how this is going to work. Um, as soon as I finish reading 
these verses from Revelation 19, the table will be open. And it is available and open to all who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a part of our church or not, if at some point in your life you have sincerely believed, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is the offering for you. He is the reason that you can be around a table with the fullness of God's provision and in the presence of God. If you believe that, the table is open to you this morning. If you have not yet believed that, I wanna invite you to believe it. There'll be no better time and place to put your faith in Jesus Christ than at the table. There'll be no better time and place for you to finally realize who your ultimate provision is and whose presence you deeply long to be in, whether you're conscious of it or not, the presence of the Lord. No better time than this morning. So for some of you in the room, I just dare to believe there may be one or two or three or five or six of you that it all clicked for you this morning for the very first time. That's not because of me. That's through the Spirit speaking through God's Word, living Word of God for us today. And I dare to believe that that could be true. And if you this morning are coming to faith then I'm gonna invite you to come to the table. And it's as simple as just believing Jesus Christ died for you, for the sins that you did. Put your faith that that death was not just for the whole world, but for you in particular. And then put your faith that that atonement, that sacrifice was enough. You're covered. And through faith, you no longer need to see your nakedness. You can now see your clothing, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ covering over your sin. And if that expresses your, your true faith this morning, come to the table. Come to the table with us and celebrate. So here's how it's gonna work. I don't want you to go alone to the table. If you've come here with family or friends, I want you to go together. If you've not come here with family or friends, I want you to go to a table and you will not be alone. No one's gonna be alone this morning. So here's how it's gonna work. After I read the passage, they're gonna be singing a song and at your own pace, at your own timing, you don't have to all go at once. We got plenty of time. Just get up and move to a table. When you're at the table, grab a little piece of bread and grab a cup. And then before you eat it, I want you to look around the table and, and make eye contact with people that are there. This is your family. These are the people that you have a greater connection to than any blood, than any political affiliation, than any gender, than any race, than any culture, than any nationality. I could go on and on. This is your family that you will be eating and dining and celebrating with for eternity. So I want you to look each other in the eyes and I want you to say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And as you're just doing that in twos and threes and fours and sixes, then right then he's risen, he's risen indeed. Eat the bread, drink the cup at the table and then you can go back and have a seat. And then the next group will come right in after you and fill around a table again. So we have tables in the back, tables in the front. Go to whichever one is closest to you. Let me read this text and then we'll celebrate the table together. Go ahead and stand up as I read. Revelation 19, six to nine. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Amen? Amen. Let's come to the table together.